Hey everyone, this is Ken coming at you right now. You're about to listen to an interview we conducted with Conley Owens. Conley wrote The Dorian Principle, a book about uh, it's a biblical response to the commercialization of Christianity. And I'm going to tell you right now, this very well be the book of the year for me. I mean, I know it's only February, we're coming into March, but this book is just so good in its biblical exposition and, and examining the biblical texts getting the principles at play there and putting it into practice. This is the financial ethic that our church needs. So whether you are a pastor or a layman in the church, or you just want to have a a better understanding of how we think about ministry finance, you need to pick up a copy of this book. And guess what? You can get it for free, which is what this whole thing is all about. That ministry, we should not be charging for ministry. So go to the DorianPrinciple.org and you will get this book. They'll ship it to you for free. You could get the audio version. You could get the ebook version, PDF, whatever, where you want it. You can get it and you can get it all for free. They'll send you a nice little bookmark and a little uh, tracked summary of the book as well that you can give away or do whatever you want with. But uh, I'm just letting you know right now, you want to listen to this interview because of the principles at play here. I really do believe this is so crucial and critical for our churches to embrace. So without any further ado, other side of the music, our interview with Conley Owens. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Conley Owens is a pastor at Silicon Valley Reformed Baptist Church and a software engineer at Google. He's also the author of The Dorian Principle, a biblical response to the commercialization of Christianity. And he's so kind to join us today on the podcast. Welcome, Conley. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, I like this book. I, uh, we got this book at G3, Ken and I did, uh, mm-hmm. for free. <laughs> and that will come up uh, soon. You'll, you'll discover why we got this book for free. But uh, I, I just want to say from the outset, I, uh, reading through this book, I, I just know, Conley, that, that you're my kind of guy. You are uh, a, con- a guy of, a man of principle, of conviction, who's not afraid to address some of the bigger issues that exist that so often we just like to sweep under the rug. And so uh, thank you for being brave, for writing this book and for articulating uh, something that so many people have thought about and have been unable to put to words, been unable to tie together in scripture. Uh, What you've done with this book is not only uh, a courageous thing, but it's a needed thing. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a privilege. Um, Yeah. I thank I thank the Lord that I've had the opportunity to do this. Well, let's let's start with the the definition that you give of the Dorian principle, which of course is the name of the book. It comes from a Greek word, uh, the word Dorian, and I can let you explain that here in a moment. But the definition that you give on page one hundred four of the book 
is in the context of gospel proclamation, accepting support as anything other than an act of co-labor compromises the sincerity of ministry. And I'll repeat that again for our listeners, because there's a lot to catch there. In the context of gospel proclamation, accepting support as anything other than an act of co-labor compromises the sincerity of ministry. And really the uh, first two thirds of the book are focused on this idea of co-labor or partnering uh, over and against reciprocity or making payments to somebody for Christian ministry. So you want to just walk us through that, that big idea, how you arrived here, what that word uh, Dorian means and, and why you wrote the book. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure how useful it would be to discuss how I got here because I feel like I went a real circuitous route, you know, really roundabout. I I spent a lot of time studying Paul without, uh, before I realized how straightforward Jesus' teaching was on this. And in the book, you know, I've totally reversed it. I start off with Jesus' teaching and then, and then move to Paul later. But, um, yeah, the word Dorian is the Greek adverb that means freely. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, freely you received, freely give. So very straightforward statement that the gospel is to be offered freely. We've received the gospel freely. We ought to give it freely. But then in the next two verses, uh, Matthew 10, 9 through 10, he says the worker is worthy of his food. And in Luke, he says the worker is worthy of his wages. So he says on one hand, uh, you're not supposed to receive payment. And on the other hand, you are supposed to receive payment. So how do you how do you hold those two things together without them being contradictory? And I believe the distinction Jesus is making and Paul is making and later on John the Apostle makes is a distinction between, as you said, co-labor and reciprocity, where the gospel is being given in exchange for something versus people giving to you to promote the gospel, either by honoring you for what you have done or uh, in t- uh, to make sure that the proclamation continues. Yeah, so we're talking about this, these concepts, co-labor, uh, you, reciprocity, you, you pit those things against each other in the book and um, really give out a really pretty extensive argumentation for for those two concepts and 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 displaying from scripture where those two concepts come from how would you respond to somebody though who says you know okay we're we're talking about this it, the end result is actually going to be pretty similar i mean the the minister is still going to end up with the money isn't this just the issue of semantics how would you respond to someone saying because that? you're so, not against people getting money and yeah absolutely not no yeah i'm a reformed baptist and the 169 confession that Reformed Baptist hold to, uh, even says that ministers ought to be supported full time. Um, so a lot of people have read those same passages I have and come away with the conclusion that it's wrong for ministers to receive payment or salaries or, you know, but that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, you know, they need to receive uh, support from the congregation as people working together with them, as opposed to from people uh, who are customers uh, receiving a service. Now, in the context of um, in the context of weekly church life, it might be mostly a matter of semantics. Of course, I would definitely argue, you know, it's important to realize you're co-laboring with your, your pastor and not think of it this as some consumer consum, uh, consumerist uh, club where you show up and you pay your money and you get your, you know, you get your message and et cetera. So there's, there's some practical application there, but where this really uh, comes into account is with other kinds of ministries, right? Mm-hmm. Books, uh, conferences, um, other places where the gospel is proclaimed. The the dynamic and how the money is raised is very different, especially if any of this is going to unbelievers, right? If unbelievers are paying to hear something, now that might not be usually what's going on, but but that can really 
undermine the sincerity of ministry, as I say in the definition. And so it, so if you want to make sure that the sincerity of ministry is upheld, uh, it must go about in this route. And there's a lot of other advantages to this too. If it is people co-laboring together, there's um, a greater sense of obligation in terms of you know accountability, in terms of prayer. When I when I purchase a book from some minister. I don't think, you know, maybe I should be praying for this guy or, you know, maybe I should be holding him accountable for what he's saying. But when I donate to someone, you know, out of uh, wanting to support the ministry, you know, as soon as they start uh, acting out of line, you know, I'll rethink my donations. I'll be praying for them. I'll be, you know, I'll feel obligated to do these things. And not only that, but it'll be a more joyful experience as I, you know, am investing in the kingdom as opposed to, you know, just purchasing a service. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits that come from, from doing this correctly, even beyond just upholding the sincerity of ministry. Now I do, I do have to say that. So when I first read this book about a week later, I made a comment to my wife. I was like, I'm telling you this, this book has ruined me. (laughs) (laughs) This book has just messed me up because all I could think about every time like I would get an email from some ministry or I would get, you know, I would see this ad or I would look at this other book. And all I could think about was this is violating the Dorian principle. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) just absolutely wrecked me, but in a really good way to where it's like, okay, I think this is, this is actually reshaping a little bit of how I'm thinking about ministry finance, reshaping a little bit about what is a biblical ethic when it comes to these things is like what Jeremy said earlier. There's, there's things that we think about that, I've always kind of bothered us about different aspects of, of ministry finance and, and how those things come together, but then actually thinking through it intentionally, it really begins to open up a whole new world of thinking about how we do conferences, how we do books, and how we do all these things in a way that- Seminaries. Seminaries, yeah, yeah that's, an, that's another one. Um, so- it, yeah, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> and, and we and we do want to get into some of those issues outside of the local church, but I, I do think it is helpful to start with the local church. Um, like you were just mentioning, you know, I think a lot of churches, especially in our kinds of circles, probably subconsciously recognize the Dorian principle in how they provide for their pastor, uh, because uh, you know I. I don't think that my church or, or Ken's church views it like, uh, you know, we're, or your church that we're lawyers or something where we clock in and we, we keep tabs of how, right. how many hours we've worked and then they pay us for our service or like a carpet cleaner or an exterminator or anything like that. I mean, it's people know it's different, but what, what you've done is provided the articulation of how that is different. So if, if we just exactly. focused on the right. local church level, because I know this is a retort that you get a lot. People come back and say, well, don't muzzle the ox while he's trading the grain. And you're saying, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that. So, so could you explain yeah. to them on a local church level how that Dorian principle comes into effect? Right. How, how that is co-labor rather than reciprocity. Yeah. Is that the question? Yes. Right. Well, yeah. And just to, just to back up a little, yeah, the claim of the book and my claim is that uh, outside of the local church, you see rampant violations of the Dorian principle inside the local church. You don't as much. There are a few, you know, some pastors are charging for uh, counseling their church members or they charge for weddings or funerals. And I think those are violations of the Dorian principle. Uh, you know, the teachings of Jesus and Paul. Um, however, the reason why, you know, why is it that when you give to your church on a weekly basis or however often you do that, that doesn't violate the principle you gather together with other people following command of Christ to gather in particular societies and make sure the gospel is proclaimed. And it is to everyone's benefit and uh, 
in, in accord with the command of the Lord, that there be someone who dedicate their life to the study of the word and prayer. Um, and uh, I, I should probably mention, you know, I am bivocational, but that's not out of conviction. I would love to be full-time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if someone is to devote their life to the study of the word of God and prayer, then how are they going to support themselves? Well, they could work on the side as Paul often did. But you see in his uh, list of persecutions that he endured along with being shipwrecked and beaten, he always listed he had to work with his hands. And so this is a suffering that he has to endure for the sake of the gospel. But we can come alongside Paul or whoever, whichever minister, and forego some of the fruit of our labor, engaging in a shared suffering uh, with that one so that we can have a shared comfort. And a lot of these ideas uh, that I'm saying and just alluding to come from Second uh, Corinthians, where Paul speaks of ministry fundraising, but in the first chapter, he talks a lot about how shared suffering leads to a shared comfort. And I really do believe that one of the things that Paul is saying is that by giving, you are engaging in a shared suffering with him and, uh, and will share in his comfort. Now, one of the things, so uh, I, as we were preparing for our interview with you, I, we listened to a couple other interviews that you did with uh, A.D. Robles. And in that interview, you, you made a comment about how if, if my church had more people, I would be pushing to pay for them to pay me more. Right. How do yeah, you? Yeah. Well, not more, just at all. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> hey, I'm a church planter. I'm bivocational and I, I get all of that too. So, um, but how do you approach that conversation in a way that preserves this principle and not making it seem like, oh, we're, we're getting into, okay, now I, you're the whole reciprocity right. aspect of things. Right. Well, uh, a word the Bible uses a lot to talk about this kind of thing is partnership or fellowship, right? And different translations are going to translate differently. Sometimes when you see fellowship, you have these really ethereal spiritual ideas, but really the word being used is the very same word used for business partnership. You see it with fishermen and the gospel of Luke. Um, but in Philippians, you know, Paul is thankful to the Philippians for their gift of funds because they're the only ones who have partnered with him in the gospel. So this is a business partnership and approaching it that way, you know, going through the, the, the verses that talk about how this should work, you know, we've got to pull our, our resources together, you know, my gifting, your finances in a way that is going to best, um, best support the kingdom of God, best expand the kingdom of God and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And how should we do that together? So that's the, that's the attitude. Um, of course, you know, the tact, that's a, I guess a different question, but starting off with all the relevant scriptures is probably the best way to do it. And one of the one of the helpful languages that I thought you used in the book is, you know, you've got the different charts and things uh, in the book that that kind of just show. Um, I don't know how well that's going to show up on the mm-hmm. screen for our viewers, but just how you know the, the obligation when we start talking about ministers getting paid, the obligation from the giver straight to the minister, and how that's that's burden, that's reciprocity, versus the giver giving unto the Lord which is that's the language that, that Paul uses in that Philippians. I actually preached on that Philippians text this last week uh, where we are coming to the end of working through the book of Philippians. Um, but he uses the language of it's a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice pleasing unto the Lord. So it is unto the Lord. And so in the book, he uses the language of a, it's a mediated obligation. Can you explain right. that concept a little bit? Yeah, so that is the difference between co-labor and reciprocity. When I give to a minister out of a direct sense of obligation, he did this thing for me, so I have to do this thing for him. Um, that's that's right. Th- that's that's the, the carpet hand, cleaner principle, to use uh, right. <laughs> Jeremy terms, right? Uh, you, you provided a service, and I owe you this. 
Right. Yeah. I like that carpet cleaner principle. <laughs> um, but uh, if, if you recognize that the gospel ultimately comes from the Lord and this person isn't a free agent, but rather a servant of the Lord, then my obligation is to the Lord and I have to give to him. How do I give to him? He's not standing here. I can't throw an envelope far enough up to heaven to reach him, you know, um, but he has commanded that I give back to him by giving to his ministers. And so that is how I give to him. So my obligation, while there is an obligation to ministers it is indirect because it is first of all to the Lord. And then because of our obligation to him obligated to other people. And uh, this is, Paul talks about this in first Corinthians nine. He uses a lot of analogies and I go through all the analogies, but the most important one he uses is to the old Testament priesthood where the old Testament priests received but how did they receive? A lot of people just look at that and they go, see, uh, minister supposed to be, he's supposed to be paid. You know, you are supposed to be exchanging money for ministry, uh, you know, paying this minister for his book, et cetera. Um, but how were the Levites paid? They were paid of the tithes and the sacrifices because their inheritance is the Lord. And how were the Israelites giving? They weren't making their sacrifice to the priest. They weren't making mm -hmm. their tithes to the priest. They were making them to the Lord. And yes, there was an obligation to the Levites, but it was an indirect one yeah. that first of all was through the Lord. And that's where I would hope that at least on a subconscious level, most of our churches recognize this principle. I would hope that the vast, vast, vast majority of people would say that they're giving their offerings to God. They're not putting money in the box or in the plate uh, to pay the pastor. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are some particularly health and wealth type scenarios where that does get conveyed. Right. But, but hopefully yeah. most people understand this is to God and then to the pastor indirectly as he is a minister of God being provided for by the congregation. Right. So um, as I think about ministry then and providing for those in ministry, uh, the local church or missionary efforts seem to be the most basic level where it's like, okay, um, we are co-laboring or partnering with ministers in the local church or missionaries who are sent out and we're not paying them for a service. We are uh, providing for them as we give to God and God cares for his ministers. But as we branch out of that, that's where things start to get hairy. <laughs> things start to get a little more exciting. Uh, right. The next, to me, I've got four levels that, that I've kind of thought through as I've read through your book. And the next level outside of that, to me, would be still dealing with local church ministers, and, and you've mentioned this, but in the realm of special services. And you talk about this in the book. So whether that's an honorarium given for speaking at a church that you you know, or typically aren't at, you're a guest speaker, um, or counseling services, someone gives you an honorarium for that, or, or you're even charging for that. You do a wedding or a funeral and you accept, uh, a gift because you did the wedding or funeral. So could you walk us through how this principle applies to those types of scenarios? Sure. And just, uh, yeah. And just, to set the context, I don't claim to have worked out all these applications perfectly. You know, I've really, and part of the reason why I held back from saying too much on applications in, in the book, and that's one of the disappointments a lot of people have, <laughs> is that there's not, like, they've got all these questions that don't I don't necessarily give answers to, is because, like, I really want to sell people on the principle, and I don't want to say some uh, wrong application that keeps people from, you know, adopting the principle. Yeah, it's so, almost like the uh, the principle could be considered 
a moral primary issue, but the applications are more conscience. Exactly. Driven. Yeah. I, the analogy I often use is to the regulative principle. Yeah. Um, you know, we can all agree on the regulative principle, even if we disagree on how it should be applied, but it's more important that we agree on the regulative principle. So we at least are trying to approximate the same thing. Yeah. So in thinking about some of those things, uh, let, let's start off with honorariums for a guest preacher, because uh, that's one where people read this book and they often think, well, that's got to be a violation, right? I don't, I don't believe it is on a couple of counts. One, if you're regular pastor, if you're able to support him, you know, to help you proclaim the gospel in this place, why can't you do the same thing with a visiting person? You don't have to think about it as us uh, giving money in exchange for this thing, but uh, you who are going to co-labor along with us for a season, even if it's one uh, Lord's Day, um, that that's appropriate. And I think we see a biblical precedent for this in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul, I believe the context of 1 Corinthians 9 is that they had wanted to pay him for having planted the church, where he's absolutely refusing. But he also says that it would be acceptable for Cephas, Peter, to have received money. And I don't know if Cephas had ever actually traveled there, but that it would be acceptable for him. And why? Because Peter is not the church planter, right? He would be just uh, working with them, and it wouldn't be an exchange of, of money for ministry, but um, of support. So uh, I don't think that honorariums are necessarily a problem, uh, you know, given that People are doing it out of a, a part, a spirit of partnership. Now, other things uh, you have, you know, paying for counseling, weddings, funerals. I think it's wrong to charge for these things because uh, there, it's even if someone is giving out of a spirit of co-labor, it's not doing due diligence to make sure that that's being communicated to the to the individual and to the world that that watches and sees what's happening. Um, so I don't I don't think that that's uh, that's appropriate, especially because there's usually like one family in a particular need that is coming to you, and as they have this particular need that you're meeting, um, you know that exchange is happening. Uh, it just has a very uh, reciprocal feel to it, and so a lot of this is just about doing due diligence to make sure that we're communicating the right thing about where the gospel is coming from. Is it coming from the Lord or is it coming from me? And uh, what are the words and gestures of fundraising that communicate that rightly? And there is a sincerity of ministry issue with, uh, if we understand Ephesians 4 correctly, that pastors, teachers are gifts to the church. And you're saying to the members of God's church, I will be a gift to you if you pay me. I will be a gift. I, I will exercise my gifts in service to you, but I require a payment. Uh, is that that would be a violation of ministerial sincerity, right? Right. I, I would say so. Um, there is one danger of going too far down that route because some people say, well, you know, he has to be willing to give uh, to minister for free as long as, you know, people can support him as long as he's willing to minister for free. I, I'm not sure I'm saying that exactly right. But uh, one one has limitations on their own life, right? They can't they can't just minister full time for free. Um, you know, I can't I can't do that. I have to do it part time, right? And you see that with Paul's own life in Acts that he's um, ministering part time until people from Macedonia show up, presumably with funds, and then suddenly he's laboring full time in the gospel. So I don't want to suggest that you know a true sincere minister is going to you know neglect his own family to <laughs> uh, to do the work of ministry. But yeah, in that context where he's already being supported sufficiently and he's just saying, no, you've got to pay the piper. Um, yeah, that's a problem. It's always historically, it's been a, a big, uh, 
I don't know what the right word is, but it, it's bothered me when that we have these biblical counseling ministries that are charging for their services. Like, and and when you think about, and this is one of our one of our uh, Facebook questions that we'll get to later on. Someone asked about counseling when counseling is really just discipleship and we're charging for <laughs> discipleship. Like what's going on there? So yeah, definitely you can see how that, that violates the the principle at play. What if we continue to kind of expand or, or you have one more thing to say about that? Well, yeah, I, I'd love to say one thing about counseling. Are you all familiar with ACBC? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. So yeah, we, we, uh, we have two certified counselors at our church. Still refer to them as wife. NANC, old school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my co-pastor and my wife are both uh, certified counselors. So I love I love their organization. Um, but one one thing they say in their standards of conduct um, is that uh, the Bible is clear that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a precious gift that should be offered without price, and that it may be necessary for ministers of Christ to selflessly serve those in their care. Biblical counselors, therefore, must seek to love their counselees in discerning whether to charge fees and how much to charge. Like. Wow, you've got wow. these things like right at odds. Bible says the gospel is to be given freely, so you got to decide whether or not you really want to charge. But uh, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of confused thinking um, in the church right now, and you can you can hear that like you know in that sitting that wrestling with it. Like Bible seems to say this, but people are doing this, and I don't think everyone can be wrong about this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think there is a problem fairly uh, rampant in the church today. Yeah. Well, again, let's let's kind of expand the the realm a little bit again. Now we've kind of stepping outside of the local church, beginning to explore the areas of parachurch ministries, parachurch organizations. They've got paid staffs. Whether that's a that's a network, it could be a seminary, it could be a conference organization that they're they're formulated, a humanitarian organization, uh, nonprofit organizations that have paid staffs. They're they exist to help the church, to further the church, et cetera. How do we think about uh, the, that kind of thing in the area of reciprocity and co-labor in parachurch organizations? Yeah, so the fact that you have in um, – well, there's a lot of things that the local church has that parachurch ministries don't. You know, they have the the, uh, the office of deacon where, you know, maybe you have accountants or whatever um, business administrators in a parachurch ministry, but usually they're not um, uh, qualified according to First Timothy 3 or haven't gone through that process anyway. Uh, so there's a lot of things to consider. The main one, however, is just because you don't have that weekly giving of the congregation, um, oftentimes parachurch ministries get very creative about how they're going to make the money that they need to to do the work that they're doing. And so usually they uh, default to some kind of reciprocal uh, service that they provide. So sometimes they they raise money through co-labor, you know, uh, just asking for donations or, you know, uh, if it's an individual, sometimes they'll set up Patreon accounts, things like that. I think those kinds of things are are uh, fine. Of course, there's always details that you want to work through and think through with that. But in general, that's fine. The problem is because um, they don't have the weekly giving of the church, they usually have to resort to the sale of something, right? Seminaries sell tuition. And, and I think that's sell tickets. Like the seminary part is where I think a lot of us feel this, where it's like, okay, you want an MDiv? Uh, six figures, <laughs> you know, sometimes. I mean, or, or pushing six figures. And that has just always, I think for a lot of us, felt wrong. I mean, how do we justify that? In a lot of ways, that's one of the easiest ones to fix too, because I guess I guess there are a lot of individuals paying seminaries, but 
ideally it'd be the church supporting the individual. And that happens a lot of times, you know, the church pays the tuition for the, for the individual, but if the church is going to pay tuition, why not just reverse it so that the church is paying, you know, on a regular basis, you know, they're giving on a regular basis so that it's not tied to, you know, them receiving for uh, a scholarship for a particular individual. Uh, that seems like it'd be one of the easier ones to fix, especially since you have denominations and church networks that are already designed to uh, accommodate these sorts of things. And we'd be better if most seminaries, um, I, I don't know what percentage of seminaries are tied to some kind of denomination, have real church accountability and which ones aren't. Um, but it's uh, it seems like too many uh, seminaries are without church accountability. And this is why they're allowed to liberalize, et cetera, is because they don't have... Uh, because it's not set up in a co-labor model, it's a reciprocal model that allows them to corrupt like this. Now, you yourself, you actually graduated from a seminary that doesn't charge. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. yes. And is and that was a that was a very you know this is before I started exploring these things. This, okay. This book was um, my uh, was my MDiv thesis before it became the book. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it just seemed uh, I, I really because I work full time. Um, at Google, I really wanted to find something that would accommodate my schedule. And, and you, what you find is that the programs that are totally free tend to be the ones that are not on a semester schedule. Hmm. Huh. Because they're also, they're also not the ones that are accredited and required to fulfill certain requirements. And so they have that flexibility to, to work with people. Now, I mean, it, it seems like it's ingrained in us as Westerners. Well, you, if you want um, education, you need to get an accredited education and to get an accredited education, it needs to cost you something. You get what you pay for. Yeah, that's right. And so how, how can we even break out of that mindset? If you're saying, look, we have biblical principles that say, no, um, it should not be this way. H how do we address this mindset, this overwhelming majority mindset of, well, if you, if you want an education, you go get a good one and you better go. I mean, if you pay for the nicer ones, sure. that's, that's higher up. If you're applying for a church, it looks much better on a resume to say you went to this really expensive school or, or whatever. I mean, there's a whole culture around education. That's a challenge, isn't there? Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things to say to this. One is I'm hoping that that will just change naturally with universities in general, given the way things are headed with, uh, I, I think something's got to collapse at some point. Yeah. Secondly, I think churches are, are beginning to recognize that uh, they need to disentangle themselves from, uh, from uh, government accreditations, you know, things that are attached to, you know, getting funding from the, from the government. So I think you're going to see more, uh, more independent accreditation come up. So yeah, the seminary I went to has like an associate status in a, um, in, uh, was it the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries or something? So it's not like the the kind of accreditation that would get you the, where you'd be able to get any kind of government funding, right? Or be a public hmm. school, but it's it's still some kind of accreditation. So I think I think churches are beginning to realize that that's not as, uh, as important to have uh, the kind of stamp where you, you know, get funding. Um, so yeah, there's several things that, that play into that. What about conferences? We said we got this book from yeah. the G3 conference. Ken and I got our copy there. Yeah, that's not a cheap conference. Um, no, no. <laughs> you you got to pay a bunch of money in addition to flights and hotels and food and everything just to right. attend and receive the ministry from the speakers. How do you how do you process something like that as we consider this level of the Dorian principle? How do you how do you make sense of conferences? 
right? So one of the illustrations I made while I was there handing out books was, you know, if you wanted to watch this conference right now, it's $14.99. Like if you were, if you were not present at the conference, you still had to pay to watch it. Um, and yeah, it is. Uh, and that's, and I find that especially interesting because, um, at that point you're making it clear. It's not the food and the, and the, you know, uh, facilities that you're paying for at that point. And while on one hand, so the way I say it in the book, someone could come away with saying, well, as long as you're only charging for the facilities, it's okay. But really I'm saying that that's the majority of the problem. I still think it's, uh, you should not be charging for anything that attends to gospel ministry. Mm -hmm. So if it, uh, in Matthew 10, Jesus told the disciples, uh, heal the dead, uh, uh, excuse me, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without pay and give without pay. So it would not have been okay for them to have charged for the miracles and then, you know, and then given the gospel for, for free. And you have Paul going around and he doesn't say, well, as long as you pay to feed me to make sure that, you know, I can do these things or whatever, um, and you pay for my ship ticket, then I will preach for you. He says he wouldn't even take their food. Right. So I think that all these things that attend to gospel ministry in order to not undermine the sincerity of ministry, that they all need to be uh, free as well. Hmm. So, yeah, conferences, once again, you know, there are a lot of Christians, Christians interested in making these conferences happen. There's no reason that this couldn't happen through a GoFundMe or something like that. Um, and that gives the opportunity for people to really invest and pray and think generously and be giving to God. Uh, there's opportunities to to really be blessed by giving to God that are lost here. Hmm. And and I'll add, I know that my G3 ticket paid for no food. Uh, there was there was <laughs> yes. there was no food that came with my conference tickets. <laughs> and the food there was pretty expensive. Yes, yes, it was. How do you think about though? Like, so you know, you mentioned. Um, Okay, they 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 shouldn't be charging for this. How do we think about this though, as individuals desiring to attend these events and wanting to right. receive the benefit of the ministry, but also seeing that yeah, they they shouldn't be charging, and they are, and yet you were at the conference yeah, as well. So right. how do we think? You're about getting that? treated like a consumer, whether you want to be or not, right? Right, right. Yeah. So should you should you boycott all these things? You know, that's a, that's one question. Um, no, I think that it would be unwise uh, for multiple reasons to do that because if you really do want, uh, you know, the benefit of this teaching, um, and there's no other way to get it, then uh, that's that's really your only option. Secondly, um, you know, Paul said that uh, you know there's some who preach the gospel unsincerely or without sincerity. Uh, I forget how he says it, but he uses the word sincerity, mm -hmm. and you know that's what I'm getting at, and he. Uh, yeah, and he says, well, you know, he thanks God that they're doing it, even if they're doing it for the the wrong reasons. So I think we can still praise God for their ministry, um, even while recognizing that it's not being done the way it ought to be done. So no, I don't think we should uh, boycott their ministry. However, at the same time, I do think that uh, we ought to consider whether or not there are ministries that are being faithful in this area that we should be uh, supporting rather than just going with what everyone else is currently, um, where they're currently getting their teaching. Um, I've made a few choices to, you know, go with, uh, yeah, some books rather than others, or, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, have Lagos because it's so, it's so much of a racket to charge for things that are already in the public domain. And I, mm. I get that there's a lot of effort that goes into the tagging and that that adds value, but it just feels, um, yeah, I feel like that's one area where I'd, I'd rather just, uh, you know, read the books without the tagging. Especially once the once the product is done, it's just, it's digital. You copy and paste and 
there's no more money going into it, right? There's it's, no overhead. That's, yeah. that's that's the point I make. That's the point I make in the book too. Is that uh, you can you can reproduce this near infinitely at near infinitesimal cost. Mm-hmm. And so the whole supply and demand model that people want to pretend like exists here just doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yes, work went into it, but that work was already done. And if it should be funded, it should be funded beforehand from someone who wants to fund it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, people, and so I get to this in Appendix C in my book, but I think there's in general a problem with the way people think of content. They think of it like a good that has a limited supply because because people have such difficulty thinking of economics outside of um, a, a, li- a finite supply and a finite demand. You know, we have laws imposed on these things to keep it that way so that we can pretend like there's a finite supply and a finite demand. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, I do think that uh, that these should be supported beforehand instead of after the fact, after it's done and could be given freely infinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's and that really gets us into what I see as the the fourth level. So going from uh, local church regular ministry to things like special services within the local church, out to things like networks, conferences, seminaries, groups of people getting together, and then you get into the like I don't know the more marketplace type world of books, music. Uh, software, like you were just mentioning, podcast paywalls, uh, things of that nature that are, you really start to wonder like, okay, what is going on here? Uh, when you, when you think about it, um, what is the basis for charging for these things? Uh, when we get into that world with all these extracurricular type of, of Christian activities that are costly, like just earlier this week, uh, a man in my church sent me a link to a sermon uh, from Ligonier and said, Hey, what, what do you think about this? I couldn't listen to it. Cause I had to buy the whole series for 1499 <laughs> to even listen to a, a sermon that was preached. Yeah. That was just a, a recorded sermon from who knows how long ago. How did we get to this point? And then what, what do we, how do we think about those sorts of things? Those sorts of things being, uh, books or paying for a sermon from RC Sproul from 30 years ago. How did we, how did we get here? Well, how did we get here is one interesting question. Um, so prior to the 1710, uh, sorry, prior to uh, the mid 1700s, you didn't have, um, authors receiving royalties, right? They wanted to get the word out. The publisher wanted to make money. And so the publisher is the secular entity who takes the content and they turn it into a resource that they can sell. But the author is not making money. In 1710, you have the Statute of Anne, which is the first modern copyright law. And since then, um, it's been possible for authors to get royalties. And I, I haven't done a good study on how quickly the church started adopting those models. I imagine it wasn't much slower than the world. But um, that that was really, you know, one of those things. And then with the advent of digital media, you know, people piled on to the options they have there. And in a lot of ways, it's gotten better because it used to be like in the early days of the internet, people would charge for, um, you know, transcripts of sermons hmm. and the it, there wasn't audio available. You would just pay a dollar or whatever, and then someone would mail you the transcript of a sermon. And after some pastors st- uh, stopped doing that and started offering their sermons for free and others realized how successful they were doing this, then they stopped charging. So that's, that's a little bit of an answer of how we've gotten here. And there has been some of that in the music world too. It's been much slower with Christian music, but you think back to um, Keith Green 
and in the 80s, right. he started doing some of that, giving away his music for free when there was no such thing as digital music. Um, he did that with physical music. But even today, um, I know Josh Garrels has done some of that and some other artists that I really enjoy uh, have given their music away, which is in this day and age, kind of eyebrow raising, but it is, there is something about it. Like this is the way it should be. Right. Yeah. So the, yeah, the question of books and resources, yes, there is money that needs to go into these, but once again, you can, you can uh, supply all of that with co-labor. Like that's the, that's the short answer. If you have a more specific question, maybe I can answer well, it, but well, really can, like, can you describe what that looks like? Cause I'm thinking, trying to think through our sure. listeners ears, like how, so they say, sure. okay, what does that mean? Or we're again, is this just a semantics trick where we're just swapping out the terms, but what, <laughs> how does co-labor look different than what we're doing now in the world of books? Yeah. Well, usually it would be pre-funding, right. Rather than royalties afterwards. So, you know, this person wants to do this project, let's fund him to do this project. You know, maybe it's through modern, um, crowdsourcing means like uh, crowdfunding means like Kickstarter or Patreon or whatever. Uh, or maybe it's through the the traditional Christian models of, you know, church networks getting together, pulling their funds to go into this, you know, one individual or ministry. And, you know, and then they work on this and they produce it. Now, uh, when it comes to physical things, you know, and things don't really need to be physical, but when it comes to physical books, like my book is a physical book, it does not cost that much to, to do these things in bulk if you really have that much demand. And if you don't have demand, it's not going to cost much anyway. Well, can um, I can I ask a little bit more about, so I've got the physical copy of the book yeah. right here, right? And it's published through First Love Publications. And by the way, uh, we were going to mention this at the end, but anybody who wants this could go first to, your, to the website, the dorianprinciple.com, I think it is. Dot org. Dot org. And you can get uh, the all the digital copies you can get audio uh, PDF all those things uh, but then you can also get the physical copy that'll be mailed to you completely free of charge how does that actually work like there's it costs money to yeah. produce this <laughs> physical copy how does that what, what are the mechanics of right. how that actually works so my church my church funded the uh, the printing of it and the publisher is uh, is funding the shipping um, and they, they were actually willing to fund the printing of it too, but I, I had particular requirements that they couldn't meet as far as the, the, uh, the size of the book and things like that, uh, given the printer they usually use. So I, so yeah, my church funded the, the printing and they're funding the, the shipping and they're a, a net, the publisher is a network of churches basically that just pulls their money together to, to fund this ministry because they understand the importance of Christian literature. So yeah, it's just it's just like any other you know Christian mission works. Well, all of us right now have books behind us. Uh, yeah. Consider commentaries, or, or right above Kin's head is the the Kittle Greek yeah. uh, set. You're you're talking even stuff like that being given freely given. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think that ministries have an obligation to make print copies available. You know, if they want to go the the traditional route, by traditional, I mean like you know, back before the 1700s, that route of just making this digital copy available. And then, you know, the publisher coming along as a secular entity and making money off of, you know, putting it in a hardbound format and selling it, then there's no sincerity of ministry that's undermined. However, mm -hmm. if they're going to get into that, that business of, of printing, they ought to be doing it freely. So that they're not undermining their own sincerity. Now on that issue of sincerity, you do make a point in the book where, we normally think of 
greedy teachers and false teachers as being separate, but sometimes there being an overlap. Sometimes false teachers are greedy and sometimes greedy teachers are also false teachers, but that's not necessary is how we typically think of it. In the book, you make the case that all greedy teachers are false teachers and vice versa. So could you, on this particular issue, could you walk through that and how maybe that would show itself through things like charging for resources? Sure. So yeah, in, in practice, you know, uh, we're all sinners. We're all going to make mistakes. So, you know, there are true teachers who do charge for ministry. There are, there are false teachers who are ascetics, but the Bible as it speaks is not so much concerned to talk about the the superficialities. It, It pierces to the heart. And so it speaks of the fact that you can only serve one master. You either serve the Lord or you serve money. And it says this over and over and over. And, um, you know, just one example, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, and then he lists all the qualities of this person who's puffed up with conceit, etc. And then he says, um, uh, he considers, uh, uh, he says the love of money is the root of all kind of evils, but he says, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm missing it, uh, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, right? So you have... Um, you have all kinds of statements in the epistles. You have Jesus' own words about uh, serving God or money. You have his assessment of the Pharisees who have the best teaching, but also are uh, are considered false teachers largely on account of uh, what they do, their corruption with money, you know, how they'll gobble up widows, et cetera. Um, yeah, the Bible, in speaking of the heart, says that you either have an alliance with yourself and your own self-interest, or you have alliance with the Lord. And so typically, the way that fruit bears itself is in uh, desiring in desiring money in particular. Now, it could be all kinds of self-interest things. It doesn't have to be currency. But um, we should expect that in general, uh, that is how it will manifest itself. And so what that means is that this is supposed to be the primary tool that we have in our tool belt to discern false teachers from true teachers. Now, right now, that tool is pretty rusty and unable to be used that well because all the true teachers, or, you know, the more famous ones anyway, are, you know, engaged in uh, in this reciprocity. And that's not uh, making them like false, the false teachers, teachers. by right. uh, de- default. Right, right. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I still appreciate all their ministries. You know, some of these people that I'm that I'm saying are doing this wrong, I'm big fans of, but at the, at the same time, uh, yeah, we are, we are supposed to be able to distinguish false teachers from true teachers on this grounds. Mm. And Paul says in second Corinthians 11, that he has never charged them for his, for his preaching. And he will continue to never charge them to distinguish himself from those false teachers who do. Now, a lot of people take that and they say, oh, well, that's just because they're charging. And Paul is picking this thing kind of arbitrarily to distinguish himself. No, that he is choosing something that really shows he is a true teacher. Mm. Um, this is supposed to really show that it's, he's not, you know, wearing a red hat because they wear blue hats. You know, this is, uh, this is really supposed to be the means which, by which we are distinguishing ourselves from others. And right now the church at large is, is uh, failing more than it ought. And I think if we kind of took a look around at the different ministries and teachers that are out there, that it, it can become pretty evident pretty quickly which ones are obviously very clearly they're in this for the money, which ones are they're there for the ministry and they're charging for things, but perhaps it, it's kind of pretty evident that they're doing it just this is just how we do mm-hmm. things in America these days. 
But then there's the others that it, it's a little bit fuzzier. They're guys that maybe we would say are generally orthodox, and yet there's just these questions. Like there's a five thousand dollars speaking fee. Well, that's right. That's what I was about <laughs> right. to mention. There's some press that came out pretty recently about some pretty well-known teachers that charge ten thousand dollars to be booked for speaking. Those should be red flags for us. Right. So, well, to be fair, if I if I'm thinking of the same. Uh, things that you're thinking of that were shared around social media. I saw like a lot David of people. Like David Platt, 10,000, 15,000, right? Right, right. Yeah, there's no, there's no need people. to conceal it. <laughs> well, I saw a lot of people re uh, uh, take, retract their statements and say, this was just from some third-party website that's uh, that's approximating what each of these different speakers might charge. Those, those weren't necessarily... It, the posts that I saw weren't really founded on any kind of real thing other than an approximation. Uh from some third-party website. So I don't know how true that is. Now, it may very well be that they're charging that much. And at that point, yeah, that's, this doesn't look like co-labor anymore. You know, I yeah. asked one of the nearby pastors to speak in an event that I was uh, running, you know, a dialogue between pastors on a certain issue. And when he found out how many people would be coming, which wasn't that many, and that we weren't offering an honorarium, he wasn't interested. Yep. Yeah. You know, even though he's already well-supported. Um, yeah. Well, and, and we have, I mean, we had a, Jeremy and I actually had a conversation with a guy who was trying to get, and I'll, I will conceal these names, but someone to come in and speak and what they were upfront asking for, like the church was going to give them an honorarium, but they were asking upfront for this set fee for these guys to come in and speak. And it was, it wasn't a small amount of money. Right. And, so, yeah. And, and I've dealt with people like that in, in ministry before I'm out here in Utah and we've, you know, looked at having people come by a lot and um, there've been even musicians, it's kind of like, are you serious? Uh, but there have been guys too, like Justin Peters and James White. I've I've talked to both of them, and both of them were just saying, "Hey, if you could just give us a place, uh, give me a place to stay, um, and and a bite to eat, I'm I'm fine." And that is so much more sincere. It, it feels like that right. feels like partnership. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to. I don't want to come off as saying that, uh, you know, we should be willing to do this for once again, you know, uh, that you should be willing to minister for free in all circumstances. Once again, you can't neglect your family. The person who does that is worse than an unbeliever. But yes, when that, when that number is so high that it, it's clear that what's going on is more than just a partnership, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. undermines the sincerity yes. of ministry. Well, let me throw a couple examples out there, just real quick hit in this, in this realm of Christian resources. As we think about Bibles, and not just the fact that you have to pay for a Bible in the vast majority of instances, but you've got Christian publishers out there with their own translations of the Bible. And, and you've talked about this in the book, but they all have like their own copyright over their translation of the Bible and limitations on how much you can even quote uh, from their particular translation and how much they charge. I mean, what do you think about that? Because this is different than just your own thoughts in a book. This is the word of God. Uh, right. is this like a, a new level of insincerity? Yeah, it's certainly one I'm not a fan of. <laughs> so yeah. And it goes, it, it would surprise a lot of people, but it goes all the way down to the manuscripts themselves, uh, because the manuscripts themselves are digitized and people claim copyright over the digitization of them, over the photograph yeah. of them. And there's court precedent to show they can't really do that, but they do it. And then the, the societies that try to, um, collect these manuscripts honor that because they don't want to, you know, make these groups angry. 
So, uh, so yeah, the people of God don't necessarily have access to to all these manuscripts. You're talking about like Greek um, manuscripts, right? Yes, yeah. Greek so manuscripts, I'm in seminary yeah. right now, and I'm in Greek class. I'm about to finish up my last. I'm just started my last semester of Greek, and we spent a little bit of time talking about the bizarre world of these manuscripts, where they're like hidden away under lock and key, and it's really difficult to get access to those. Right. Yeah. And there, and there are photographs of many of them that exist that is, are also difficult to get access to. Like, I understand if you don't want anyone damaging this manuscript and there are no photographs of it because we live in a world without photographs, but we, we live in a world where there are cameras. You know, why, right. <laughs> why can't we just uh, give people access to this? And there are, if, if the data were like readily available, there are all kinds of, as someone who has experience in data, did, his, did a master's degree in uh, data science excuse me, not data science, data mining. Um, you know, I would love to, you know, do all kinds of analyses with these things, but you really, you really can't. That's just for those who, you know, have the resources to uh, get all the, get all the information they need. So then it, then it goes up to the next level, which is the critical text, right? So mm -hmm. people take these manuscripts, they turn it into a critical text, which is, you know, oh, well, there's a misspelling here. There's a word out of order here. Let's, let's choose what we think the right order of the words are, et cetera, you know, based on some principles. And try to approximate as much as possible what the original apostles wrote. And so the idea is if they did a perfect job, um, this should be exactly what the apostles wrote, and then they copyright that. So, so, you know, in an ideal world, they've done it perfectly. And here they are copywriting the apostle's own words, which you're not supposed to be able to copyright something that's that old, but, mm. um, and then, and then it goes to the next level, which is the translation. And so they copyright the translations, which, yeah, the reason why you have so many different translations is in my understanding, primarily because, you know, uh, each publisher needs their own translation so right. they can make commentaries with them. Yeah, yeah, so they don't have so, to pay any other publisher the royalties for yeah, using theirs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. oh, I yeah. mean, just so are, how gross is this? This seems so perverse. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, and so there are there is free use, so you're allowed to quote within uh, degrees, but it's not well defined. And so the these publishers for their translations have guidelines where they say, well, if you do about this much, you know, we won't go after you, but if you do more than this, we will. And and so you know, I quote the ESV in mine because um, I like it, but uh, but. Yeah, they've they've stated like what they think the fair use should be like basically where they're willing to sue you and then where you know where they're willing to violate First uh, Corinthians six basically. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it does it does bring a, a whole new level of appreciation for um, things like that the the SBL the uh, the right. Greek uh, um, uh, I'm I'm. Words yeah, are out of my brain a, for the they moment. They have a Greek critical edition with an apparatus. Yeah, the yeah, SBL that's TNT. Yeah. considered open source, and anybody it's it's not copyrighted, so it's accessible for anybody. Uh, you don't have to pay for that. So it uh, it brings another level of appreciation for those that right. are seeking to do things really the right way, yeah. and not right. charging for the word of God in in the spirit of partnership. Uh, now, yeah. what about when we get into the world of like Christian branded? clothing items or things that have a practical use, like a Jesus hoodie, uh, someone making right. a Jesus hoodie and charging 50 bucks for it. Uh, where does the right. Dorian principle come in? And, and again, we, we all know sure. there are a million different ways that this can be applied and there's no way you could even think of all the ways, but I'm just throwing it out there right. to see your reaction. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think the Dorian principle addresses a lot of these things. You know, if I put a Christian fish on my business to try to get more customers, I think that's a little distasteful if that's the reason you're doing it, you know, <laughs> but, uh, 
but yeah, that's that doesn't really get into co-labor or reciprocity. I think um, that's actually a violation of the in, in the Ten Commandments, taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. I think it's a violation of that principle. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's great if you're a, a Christian and wanna wanna let other people know that you're open to talking, but if you're if you know, if you're doing it in such a way where it's crass like that and it and you are, then yeah, you would be taking the Lord's name in vain. Um now, things like, uh, you know, I'm selling this T-shirt and to make it more marketable to Christians uh, who are my, you know, let's pretend I'm a Christian making shirts for other Christians. I know they want, you know, a Bible verse on their shirt. Uh, so you you do that. Now, suddenly, you know, can you not charge for that? Well, I don't I don't really get into this in the book, but I don't think that counts as gospel ministry. Um, I do think all the Bible relates to the gospel. And so I do believe that th- this applies to all kinds of teaching. That's That's something that I think might not be clear to people outside of reformed camps is that really any religious instruction should be related to the gospel and therefore uh, should be um, guided by the Dorian principle. But when you're selling a shirt and the essence of the thing you're selling is a shirt and you're decorating it with, with the Bible, or, you know, you're selling uh, a elementary school education at your private school and you're going to frame it in a biblical worldview, you know, so that people aren't taught uh, to think in ungodly ways. Uh, I think that's wonderful. And I don't think you necessarily need to, uh, offer that for free because the essence of what you're selling is not gospel proclamation, even if the gospel is, you know, present in the outskirts of what you're doing, you know, or, or, um, yeah, present to, to frame what you're offering. Now this episode may or may not be sponsored by a Christian clothing company. <laughs> and so not, not just the existence of Christian clothing companies, but the idea of sponsorships, one Christian organization sponsoring another, uh, how does the Dorian principle play into that? That's a great question. And that's one I do not answer in the book, but as I've thought about it afterward, I've come to more firm conclusions. And this is, this is another one of those things where I don't want like my wild applications to keep people from, <laughs> from uh, agreeing with the principle. But I think when it becomes, uh, when you are getting something out of your, uh, your viewer, right. And you've gotten a view from them and you've, you've been able to put an ad in front of their eyes. Uh, I think that that, that undermines the sincerity of ministry. Now, it's obviously not the same kind of uh, problem that some of the other examples of reciprocity are, but I do think it counts as reciprocity. There's a lot of hard questions I've had to work with. Like one was uh, whether or not employee matching programs, you know, here in the Bay Area, there's a lot of employee matching programs where if you donate to some 501c3, uh, your company will match it up to $5,000 or $10,000 or whatever. And that's a that can be a big revenue for churches around here. Um, you know, does that count? Uh, and I, I think that that can count as co-labor, even if the, the one co-laboring is not um, uh, doing so out of, out of a, uh, a right heart. Um, you know, I have my kids engage with me in family worship, even though, you know, not all of them are converted. And as a, you know, a Baptist. Spoken like a great Baptist. That's right. Yeah, I know. I don't, (laughs) you know, I don't give them a free pass for, you know, as being a covenant child or anything like that. But I still, you know, think that they ought to be worshiping the Lord with me. So I think I think that kind of same idea applies with uh with employee matching. There's a lot of harder issues that, yeah, that's that's kind of where I stand on those. Yeah. So we mentioned the the sponsorship thing. Then there's the issue of YouTube monetization. We right. actually just crossed all the thresholds that if we wanted to monetize our channel, we could do it now. Right. How do you think about that? Where that's that's not a that's not two Christian organizations like was mentioned before. That's the secular YouTube coming together. Right. So the reason the reasoning I just gave is one that m- applies to ads like that. Now, 
now actually like going back and re-answering the sponsorship question, um, you know, thinking about two Christians, like if you want to, you know, give a plug for some organization that you like, but if you're getting kickbacks, et cetera, like that's, that's, that's kind of what makes it distasteful is that um, you're saying, you're basically showing, you know, I'm doing this ministry, I'm giving you this thing so that I can get these views from you and then get money by that, even if it's a little indirect. Hmm. Well, uh, we do want to get to our Facebook questions. Uh, one last, uh, one last question before we get into the feedback we got on social media. Is there a way for you to give a, a hard principle, just in a nutshell, for those listening? When does the line get crossed into objectively sinful activity when it comes to finances and ministry? Is I mean, would you just go back to the definition that we read at the beginning um, about the accepting support as anything other than an act of co-labor? It, does that cross into objectively sinful activity? Or is this still so ambiguous that we can't really say anything sure. yet. Well, there are certainly areas where it is fuzzy. There are areas where it's clear, you know, someone who, who, uh, the Didache says that if anyone comes to you and, and wants money in exchange for their teaching, you to consider them a false teacher. Uh, Didache um, being, could you give uh, a brief the, overview? Yeah, for... sure. Yeah. That's uh that is a first century non-scriptural, Christian writing. So it's the earliest non-scriptural Christian writing that we have. Like how did the earliest church outside of the Bible think of this? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that this ought to be something where, uh, our thinking should be clear. And yeah, at this point in time, there are edge cases where I'm going to be fuzzier about, but there are things where I'm going to feel very strongly about. I, I really think that books are, um, you know, Christian books, if we're not talking about novels and fiction and things like that, I think that uh, that's a very clear hmm. um, violation of the principle. Hmm. Yeah. One more, I, I keep coming back to thinking about sponsorships. One more example where I could imagine a sponsorship being okay. If I, uh, you know, if I'm supported by uh, a church, for example, right. And I mentioned that, yeah, this church is funding this ministry, like, or this, uh, or, uh, you know, these various, um, you know, this network of people are, are funding this thing. And so thank you to that, to them for doing that. That's not, uh, that's not necessarily reciprocal because you're not, you're not getting a kickback for that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, you want to jump into these Facebook questions, Kent, and we can, uh, maybe start with Obadiah's comment, yeah. um, which was a question that I had, uh, I think when we were talking about this earlier this week, I, it's very similar to some thoughts I had, but we can just pick out some stuff. A lot of, lot of good questions. We asked for hard questions because Conley's going to answer it. Not, not us. So, <laughs> um, you want to get us started, Ken? Sure. So, you know, we asked uh, any questions that people have about Christians getting paid for their ministry in any form. Uh, one of the questions from Obadiah, how do you determine the correct pay for a pastor and how do you determine his worthiness according to his labor? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, certainly, it should be about faithfulness and not precisely about numbers. Even if numbers are a reason to uh, be introspective and consider faithfulness, uh, th there's a lot of hard questions there that I can't answer because you know this is not this is a little outside the door in principle. First of all, um, how should you go about paying a pastor? Uh, a lot of questions that come up here, and once again, I don't consider myself the expert on any of this. Uh, one of the questions is, 
should the, the fact that he has family matter or should you just be paying him for his work? I think it should matter. I think you should be paying him so that, uh, as my own confession says, so that he can engage in hospitality. And so if you're paying him just what you think he's worth and not necessarily so that he can engage in the kind of work a pastor needs to do, um, that's, that's a problem. So I, I do think uh, you should take into account uh, how much family he has to support and uh, what his life situation is currently. Um, and then, you know, what is the, what is someone needing the area to, to live well? Um, because they should be able once again to be hospitable. You know, they shouldn't be uh, not only not impoverished, but not in such a condition that they can't, they can't exercise hospitality because that is one of the requirements for a pastor. Um, so those are some considerations. Very practically, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, has a tool to determine pastor salary in a given area uh, that I find uh, I have found very helpful because there's always questions about, well, am I forgetting anything that I need to worry about? That's a really good tool to use. Uh, just a practical tip there. It's not the end all be all. You know, have your deacons review everything. But um, no. yeah, it's a uh, th that's a good starting place. Well, well kind of. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say connected with this question, someone asked. Kind of a kind of a cynical question in the midst of this. Uh, Mike said, well, "When you candidated candidated at your church, were you aware that you were the lowest bidder?" <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you know you candidate a church, and you know you're like, "Oh, how much are you going to pay? How much how much money are you asking for?" And you know it it becomes the mindset can easily become a, res a reciprocity mindset of we are hiring you to do this job rather than thinking of it in gospel ministry. So how do we even right. approach that conversation when we're seeking to hire a pastor? Right. Yeah, it's a it's a very similar answer to when we were talking about, you know, congregations, you know, negotiating this kind of thing. Like really uh looking at the biblical verses, talking about it in terms of partnership. And, you know, the pastor, you know, as he's coming in, maybe he's working with a committee that's not really thinking about these things well, being able to point them to these things and say, hey, look, I'm not asking this so that I can, you know, uh, live a cushy life. I'm asking this so that, you know, uh, that, that uh, Christ would not be represented poorly if I'm not honored properly, so that, uh, you know, I can engage in hospitality, so that I can be free from uh, secular concerns and able to really devote myself to this, because I want to do an excellent job for you. And I'm not going to be able to if I have to, you know, worry about whether or not I've got to make cuts to different areas of, uh, you know, uh, where my kids go to school, things like that. If that kind of stuff is distracting me, I'm not going to be able to, to help you nearly as well um, in uh, co-laboring for the gospel. Now, perhaps it gets a little more complicated with missionaries. The way I was thinking through this issue with Ken earlier this week was from a church perspective of support that you give to a missionary say that the missionary's role changes, where that missionary went from being a church planter to no longer being a church planter or a pastor to no longer being a pastor. And as you're reviewing, you know, a church is reviewing the stewardship of her finances, says, well, do we really want that much money going to that type of ministry and maybe adjusting it based on how things change out on the mission field? That almost hints at a, had a spirit of reciprocity, doesn't it? Where you're not, you're not receiving a direct service from the missionary, sure. but, but you're saying, well, I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to pay that much for that. <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of consumerish feeling. Yeah. Well, we are, you know, we are all servants of the same King, but yet we're not given uh, such 
micromanage direction from him that we know how to spend our resources. And so we have to independently decide, you know, where are the best places to pull it, pull meaning P-O-O-L. Yeah. Uh, and so if we decide, you know, as a congregation that it's not ideal to pull it here for the sake of the kingdom, I think that's perfectly appropriate in a, in a co-labor partnership fashion to say that, hey, I don't think that this is a this is going to be a healthy partnership given the limitations on our own resources. You, you responded to Brandon Michael Wilson's comment and said you'd love to discuss well, something. One, one more thing I oh, wanted yeah, to go say ahead. about that. We, uh, there are a few verses I haven't mentioned yet that I usually try to get in a lot of these conversations, but uh, missionaries, that's one where thankfully things are usually done pretty well. Uh, and the Bible speaks about it very directly. It says uh, in third John seven and eight, uh, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, not accepting anything from the Gentiles. Therefore, you ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So you have missionaries do not, you know, take money from the ones that they're sent to. Uh, and of course, you know, that makes more sense to us now that it's usually richer nations sending people to poorer nations back then. Maybe, you know, it wasn't that dynamic. So there was more temptation. But uh, there you have a very clear distinction between co-labor and reciprocity. We ought to be fellow workers with them by giving them money mm. so that uh, because they have not taken money, they, they have evidenced themselves to be faithful ministers because they're not taking money from the people they're teaching. He just quoted Third John. He's the real deal. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brandon Michael Wilson commented and said, personally, I do not have a problem if they earn income from book writing. What's important is how much of the profit do they keep? People point out that Billy Graham was worth twelve million, but how much could he have had? Uh, how much could he had been worth if he kept the money from his book sales? If their outside ministry can substation them, what was he trying to say? Probably subsidize Su or sustain. Uh, sustain. Yeah. If their outside ministry can sustain them, then the tithe should be used in the maintaining of the building and helping the community slash the flock. So this is something that comes up, I think, quite a bit. There are other comments to this nature, like Rick Warren and others. And you, you talk about it in the book. Those who live off of their book sales, they don't take a salary from the church. And it's like, hey, uh, is, isn't that a great thing? How, how do you think through that? Yeah, well, I'd say that's the exact opposite of what the Bible has to say. And I, I appreciate this question. Like I, I, this comes out of uh, a, uh, it's very well meant, but I think it's very misguided to take this approach. So, so I'm not burdening the church at all. Right, right yeah, I'm not yeah. burdening the church, but you're burdening all the people that you shouldn't be burdening, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're saying, oh, well, you know, if this person's getting, this person should get a lot of reciprocity because they're able to and totally jump out of the co-labor scene. Um, no, they should be, they should be ministering by co-labor. And yeah, if they're so popular or whatever, maybe they could, you know, set up a way that people could support them in a partnership fashion in a co-labor fashion. Uh, that wouldn't be a problem, but, uh, this is the exact opposite. Rick Warren makes money from his book, doesn't take anything from his church. It should be the exact opposite. It should be coming from his church and the, the people receiving his teaching, uh, on the outside that should be happening for, for free. And the church is encouraged in scripture to honor their pastor, uh, that exactly. way and you're robbing the church of that duty. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And the blessing of doing it. Yeah. What other questions? Can yeah. you get some more so, highlighted? And there? So oh, one sorry, more, go ahead. Just a few, just a few other thoughts on that profit. A lot of people say, well, uh, it depends on how much they're profiting or maybe as long as they don't make profit, they think that that's the, that's the biblical ethic. The Bible never says anything about profit like that. It never says, well, as long as they only make as much as they put into it or something like that, 
you know, Lord willing, ministers would be greatly honored so that they're, you know, not G6 wealthy, but, you know, really uh, well, well off. Not, not I, I have Copeland no problem with wealthy. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Paul think, says, uh, I know how to abound. And that's, he's talking about, it's seeming like yeah. he's got more than he needs and he right. knows how to be brought low. So there's, there's a swing there. Right. So, yeah, a lot of people think that that's the dividing line. It has nothing to do with profit. It has nothing to do with amount. It has to do with the um, – while there sh should be concerns about amount and appearances and things like that, the, the real concern is about whether or not it's co-labor or reciprocity. So uh, that's – yeah, that's the issue. And then the other thing is, well, what if you take all the money that you make and you give it away to the poor or you give it to some other organization? Or like, for example, John Piper has been um, convicted by a lot of these same verses that I'm talking about, right? And so he – all his books, all his newer books are for free online, but uh, he takes the proceeds from the physical sales and uh, and gives them away. Now, what uh, yeah, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's that's great, you know that he's had a conviction about some of these verses and giving away the teaching for free. However, the fact that those things which accommodate it are being sold, even if he's giving that money away, that's still a reciprocal exchange that undermines the sincerity of ministry because someone's still benefiting from that. Yeah, so we talked about um, – someone asked a question about counseling, which is actually just Christian discipleship. Should pastors get paid for counseling services? I think from our conversation, we could say that's reciprocity. If you're getting paid for counseling, stop it. <laughs> we, we should yeah. – Churches should recognize this as a minister's, uh, as what a minister ought to do. And for those who are not in ministry, the church should think of ways that they can support them, even financially. And, and it's not, I mean, there's lots of churches that do operate in that exact way, where they do have counselors on staff, but they are paid just like the pastor's paid through uh, the donations that come in, through people giving unto the Lord, through their tithes and offerings to the church, uh, that that is the better way to approach that. Um, someone asked about uh, copyrights and music, and again, we talked about this as well, uh, and, and the scheme a church has to pay to sing certain worship songs. How? What's what's a better way that we can approach – CCLI is a thing, right? Yeah. It's out there. How do we approach and that better? And it stinks. And it stinks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I call it a worship tax, you know, that you have to, mm. you have to pay some fee in order to worship the way that you like can't to worship. Sing, you can't worship God with my song unless you give me money. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's it's seriously problematic. Um, so, some things to think through. One thing I mentioned in the book is that there actually is a U.S. copyright law provision for churches to uh, display works of art um, that are under copyright without securing special rights, and uh, and perform them. Um, now, uh, you know, to what degree that is allowed. Uh, outside of the place of worship, like for example, once you're streaming, I don't know. I have no idea if any of this has been tested in court, but um, there are provisions in copyright law that people generally aren't taking advantage of. They just listen to what people say and they they pay the CCLI when I don't think the CCLI is necessarily giving them anything. Um, you know, because the CCLI doesn't give you grant you the right to rearrange any of the music. It doesn't grant you the right to. Um, I mean, you already have the right to sing it in church, uh, so. There's a lot of things to think through there that uh, people may there there may be a bit of extortion going on with that one. Um, on top of that, yeah, the the musicians should be offering these things freely. And one of the one of the problems with 
the modern day church is that so much the music is made by musicians and not by theologians. Mm. And ideally it would be theologian musicians who are, who are making the music, who have a mind towards these things already have a means of support from their church and, um, and are doing it for the good of the church without, you know, just trying to make a buck out of it. And we praise God that there are several musicians and, and groups out there, churches that are producing excellent music and they are making it available and easily accessible where you don't have to go behind a paywall to get the resources, to get the sheet music and to get those things. They make that available. And it's kind of interesting. The whole COVID stuff kind of tested a lot of the copyright stuff. And I know I got an email from CCLI. It's like, oh, you're looking to stream your church. Can you stream your music time? The answer was no. You're not allowed to do that with unless you purchase the streaming license and all these right. things. It, it just, yeah, a lot well, of wild um, stuff there. There are a lot of questions that we were given. I think we've answered through the interview, but um, maybe if we want to finish with Elise and Joy, those two questions, I think, um, I don't think we, we have covered those. Elise asks, should the church pay for regular sabbaticals? And then she goes on to say, while pastors write their books. Um, but, but that's an interesting thing too, as far as uh, when you consider what he might be doing on the sabbatical, I, I think we'd probably all agree that the local church can decide, you know, sabbaticals for their pastor that they can, they can figure that out. But as pastors go out and write their books, uh, would this kind of tie into the idea of a church funding, a book writing like your church did with you, the, the pre-funding aspect? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that'd be a great way to go labor with a pastor. Um, uh, I have found it's easiest to, uh, put this into my weekly routine rather than set a whole month aside. But yeah, if a pastor wants to do that, I think that's a, a great way of doing it. And um, yeah, but then the problem is after that, well, then after your church funded all that, then you go <laughs> make <laughs> royalties. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's where the problem comes in. Right. And and then Joy, she asked a few questions and I think we answered her, her last two, but the first one um to just make sure we're nailing this down so we're all on the same page. She just asked, what is the definition of ministry? And we have kind of uh, thrown this out a few times, so I don't know if we've actually said, okay, here's what we're talking about when we say ministry. Do you have a hard and fast definition for that? Uh, I do. I do give one in the book, but I wouldn't call it hard and fast. <laughs> um, and that, well, it makes sense, but it's, it's maybe not as well defined as it could be. Um, so uh, it's let's again see. going back to page, uh, I guess 105, any activity that proclaims the gospel or directly attends to its proclamation. Right. Right. So, yeah. And so what is that? And once again, where is the line, you know, a t-shirt with a, with a Bible verse on it, does that count? Or uh, let's say, uh, yeah, let's say I have a t-shirt with a Bible verse and I add another Bible verse, then I add another Bible verse. And then I add a second t-shirt and I start binding them together. At what point does that become a Bible? I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> um, you know, this is real, uh, it's real stoic uh, ship of Theseus kind of questions that, uh, that I can't answer. How many, how many grains of sand until it becomes a hill? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so this, this is where it gets really difficult to define what what is ministry, but um, I think there's a lot of things we can agree are ministry, and then other things, yeah, we'll just have to we'll just have to work it out. But if you're proclaiming gospel, if you're proclaiming the gospel, if you're giving any religious instruction from the Bible, which you know, if you if you come from Reformed theology background, you know that uh, Luke 23, First uh, Corinthians 2, Colossians 1, all these all these passages talk about how uh, the gospel is present in all of Scripture. 
right? It's, it's not just uh, Christ and him crucified present in all of scripture. It's not just, uh, you know, the first four books of the New Testament or something like that. So really all religious instruction uh, is should be governed by the Dorian principle. Now what, now that's when the essence of the thing being offered is that instruction. If the essence is some other kind of product, like a t-shirt or whatever, I, I don't think it should be um, governed, but yeah, that's, that is the hardest question to answer in this, what, what constitutes ministry. And then secondarily, not as hard, I think is what constitutes reciprocity or co-labor. Yeah. Very good. Well, Conley, we're one, very, one, oh, go one, ahead. One other thought about uh, music. Uh, we were talking about music and well, now the thought has escaped me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh yeah. If, uh, if this, if this takes off and more people are aware of what I'm, what I'm saying in the read the book and are interested in trying to push this forward. One of the projects I'd love to do is a, uh, a public domain hymnal. Of course, there are a lot of hymnals that are public domain just, just because they're old, but one, um, an updated modern one. Uh, I would Where you're actually getting the artists to give over their those particular songs that they, that you want to include as public domain. Right. Yes. Wow. And in addition to some older ones that, you know, people would want to still sing. But what happens with a lot of these hymnals is they'll, you know, they'll add um, some harmonies or they'll rearrange it a little or they'll and then suddenly you've made one change and. Uh, and now it's copyrighted and people have asserted copyright on, I, I was told by a, a lawyer friend that there was a case of someone who had, um, who had transcribed old music and had made typos in it. Like, you know, some of the notes were wrong. And so someone went and uh, redistributed this, but then that person who had made the transcript claimed copyright on like the mistakes that they had made <laughs> so that this person couldn't share this old thing. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's what happens with, uh, with hymnals is you make small little changes to very old things and you claim new copyright on it. So let, let's get the, uh, the verbiage, right. Let's, let's make the plan, right. Let us know if that project is in the works so we can pre-fund the free public domain hymnal. So we can co-labor. Yes, so right. That's right. Worship God freely. Yeah. <laughs> Without the tax. Amen. Amen. Well, Conley, it's, this has been a really good conversation. I hope it's helpful for our listeners. I, I know it will be. I know it was challenging for me and helpful for me. So I'm very, very grateful. If anybody wants to get a copy of this book, again, the DorianPrinciple.org link will be in the show notes so you can check that out. You can get the PDF, you can get the Kindle, you can listen to the audiobook, you can get a physical copy shipped to you as well. All of that uh, can come. So definitely take advantage of that and um, it is available to you. Uh, we do want to say kindly that uh, an appreciation to you for coming on the show. We're going to send you a $25 Amazon.com gift card. I'm just kidding. I'm just making that up because <laughs> that would violate the Durian principle. Yeah, for, we're going to send you a $25 uh, christianbook.com gift card. <laughs> <laughs> that would, that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> we do want to say anybody who's listening to this, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to us. Show at dotheology.com. We'd love to engage with you. I know that Conley would love to engage with you as well. Uh, if, if you have questions for him, uh, you can reach out to him on social media and such as well. Uh, is there yeah, any we have particular a, way? Yeah, we have a group called um, uh, Money and Ministry and in parentheses Dorian Discussions. But I think if you just search Money and Ministry, you should be able to find the group. Is that that's Money In or And? And. Oh, okay, Money and Ministry. Yes. And that's on Facebook. Yes, on Facebook. Yes. Yeah. So definitely encourage people to go check that out and get engaged with the conversation over there. So... Very good. Well, thanks again for joining us and 
I, I don't know what how to, how to end this. What am I doing? Well, I guess I'm usually <laughs> the guy who ends it, huh? You usually out, are. Out of your element. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, thanks for joining us. And yeah, people check out his book. Thanks, Conley. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.